From Share Cancer Support, this is Our MBC Life, a podcast dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico. So glad you're here, since no one should face MBC alone. Today's episode is all about working while living with MBC. So many of us have been threading this needle, living with difficult side effects, treatments, and all the while keeping up with work either because we have to or because we want to. It's no secret that the supports and safeguards for people working while living with NBC vary across the country and that protections at the federal level are still not fully fleshed out, nor do they help everyone who is living and working with NBC. It is definitely not a one-size-fits-all situation. With us today to help highlight some things to keep in mind with employers and organizations that can help, we've assembled a panel of individuals living with NBC who are still working, along with Allison Greenberg, an employment lawyer practicing in New York City. Producers and co-hosts Victoria Goldberg and Anne Woodward facilitated this discussion with Aaron and Riley, two women who have continued to work while raising young children and living with NBC. In addition, Ann Woodward and myself spent some time last week with CEO of Share Cancer Support, Carol Evans, who knows a thing or two about the many issues that continue to face women who work, including women who work while living with cancer. Carol shares lessons learned from her incredible career. Prior to joining Share, that included being the founder and CEO of Working Mother Media and Working Mother Magazine. Carol also is very honest about the shock of learning more about metastatic breast cancer upon joining SHARE, highlighting for us all how little is still known about our disease and how it affects our lives. We are lucky to have allies like Carol to help us raise awareness, improve services and supports for people living with MBC. It takes a village and our village needs to include everyone. So here's Victoria Goldberg kicking off the panel. So the topic of this panel is dear to me and to everybody else here, working, working with MBC. In my case, the decision was quite easy. I was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. I was highly symptomatic and was lucky enough not to be able to work. So I quit, but I know that all of you have made a different decision at the time. I think we can start with thinking a little bit about our diagnosis and then discuss about the decision of working and not working, why you made it, and how things have changed over time. Sure. My name is Riley. I am 42. I was diagnosed at 40. I had just had my first child and was pregnant again. I was diagnosed IDC de novo. I have metastasized um, to every organ and brain, Um, but I am finding that the current treatment plans for my case are working considerably well, so I feel fortunate. I still work full-time. I am in the financial industry, which I have been told is probably one of the better industries to work for 
if you're going to have a disease like I have, I've been able to go on short-term disability when needed. I have a very senior executive that I would say is sort of tiptoed on, you know, being unprofessional in terms of HIPAA, but I can't take the support that's been extended to me for granted. So I would say that everyone is probably faced with difficult decisions in terms of how to disclose their condition and how to keep your employer up to speed on the ups and downs of this disease. So moving forward, I've been asked if I need particular circumstances like half days or maybe even a couple of weeks out to convey that as quickly as possible. And I think I've been able to create a line of communication with my senior execs in a way that I feel comfortable being honest about what I need. But I would say based on conversations with people in my situation, that's a unique position to be in. And so I'm grateful for it, whereas I probably shouldn't be grateful for it. And it should be the norm that this is what I need. I'm a faithful employee. When I'm back, I'll be, you know, uh, able to do what I was doing before. Um, But that's not the case. And I think that conversations like this are going to get us in a better position. Absolutely. I have to say that I, I worked for 25 years in the financial industry myself. I would have said, when you first said that, oh my God, it's, it's a good place to work at, I would have probably said, oh, you're wrong. But while you were talking, I thought about it. And absolutely, there, there, are, there, is, there are some pluses about working in the financial industry. Unfortunately, the stress doesn't go away with your diagnosis. That's the, that's the problem. Well, Aaron, why don't you tell us what's happening about your diagnosis a little bit and how it feels to work full-time and have toddlers <laughs> by your side. Yeah, so I'm Erin. I'm in the Midwest. I'm in Minnesota. I actually work in a different industry, the electric industry, and I was diagnosed last July de novo. I'm 42 years old as well. My little boy was uh, four months old when I was diagnosed, and then I also had a four-year-old at the time. Uh, Yeah, or three-year-old actually at the time. So she turned four in December. So I was diagnosed triple positive. Um, So I underwent Uh, treatment for that, but I also had the complication of involvement with my spine. So I actually had, when, when they found the cancer, it had progressed into my spine. And so I had compression fractures and they actually wouldn't let me out of the hospital until I actually had a brace on me. So um, I had a couple of different things going on. You know, I was first dealing with the diagnosis itself and um, all the complications with my back. And then I also had to deal with like uh, radiation and that sort of thing. I actually started out, like as soon as I found out, I, I basically told my manager Um, my manager and I have a very good working relationship. And so um, she was able to kind of know every step of the way, kind of what was going on. And she was able to make accommodations and able to kind of show me how I can um, set expectations appropriately. It was really important to me to continue to work because I just needed something else besides cancer to focus on. I mean, cancer became like almost a a part-time job for me at that point when I was first diagnosed. And, um, I just needed something to get lost in that I could, you know, do well in 
and be productive. So it was, it was really important to me. Since then, you know, I went through a couple of other episodes. I was hospitalized at one point with neutropenic fever, and then um, I actually had acute respiratory failure. So I was in the hospital for two weeks. And yeah, so I had to use like our company's short-term disability policy at that point. And then at one point uh, coming off of that, I also employed their long-term disability policy when the short-term disability policy ran out basically. But even through the long-term disability, I was the first employee apparently who ever asked to be able to work during the extension of that benefit. We were able to work that out. And it just meant a lot to me to be able to go to work, to interact with my employees. It wasn't, even if I wasn't going to the workplace at that point, I was working from home exclusively. The other thing I wanted to mention too, was that I, because of my experience in the hospital, I came home very weak. I required a lot of physical therapy and occupational therapy. And one of the things that was really helpful to me was my occupational therapist was able to write out a list of the equipment I would require in order to be able to work even from home. And so from that, I was able to get, you know, the chair that I needed. Essentially, I was able to get a stand-up desk and my work basically provided all of those things as part of, you know, the Americans with Disability Act, uh, Disabilities Act. It was really helpful. Um, all those things kind of coming together were made it possible for me to be able to work and to be able to have a life outside of my house and most importantly, outside of cancer. Thank you, Erin. This was extremely helpful, actually. We're very lucky to have with us a uh, employment lawyer. Allison is an employment lawyer. She's joined us and it's very it's very good to hear her perspective. We're also lucky to have Anne Woodward with us, who is, uh, who is both the uh, patient and used to be on the other side of the uh, employer-employee relationship. So she can speak with us about the employer side of, uh, of this issue and maybe the employee side as well. But Allison, I wanted to ask you, in general, what would you recommend for uh, newly diagnosed people who decide that they want to continue working? What would you recommend how they would approach their employer in general terms? Well, it's, it's a great question. And, and unfortunately, uh, people are dealing with so much, you know, from the diagnosis, the stress and trauma of it, that it's difficult, I think, for people to do this in a particular way. But ideally, I think it's important for everyone to think about the fact that in, in making that decision to tell or not to tell, I mean, that's kind of the initial starting point. Right. And that's kind of a decision tree that could lead to certain ramifications one way or the other. So number one, you as an employee will have rights under various laws, federal law. If you live in New York City, where I live in practice, we also have a city law, the New York City Human Rights Law, which is very protective of employee rights. So depending on where you live, there are state laws, local laws, and ultimately those laws will govern your rights. But as a starting point, it's important to think about the work environment, how your supervisor treats other people who have had health issues or leave issues to the extent you have the benefit of knowing that information and if you don't it's a matter of trying to get the information just to get a sense of what is the 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 landscape at, at the company so number one get a sense of the landscape of the company's personality number two take stock in how you've been treated as an employee and whether you feel like you're a valued employee and whether you have a sense of how you would be treated if, if you uh, shared this information and how it might impact your 
employment there. Number three, take a look at the employee handbook. It should have the general disclosures, but maybe even it's, it's even more detailed. Maybe you'll find out that you have a short-term disability policy or, or long-term disability and other benefits that, for example, in the finance industry can be very lucrative or at least very supportive. So you want to do that research if you can. I don't think you need to talk to a lawyer at that early stage, but ultimately, if down the road you look back and think that you were treated unfairly, or you end up talking to a lawyer and the lawyer has the opinion that you were uh, treated in a way that violated a law, you'll look back to the beginning and whether you disclosed that you had cancer or an Ill serious illness, or you kept it to yourself. Because depending on what you share or don't share, that can dictate whether you would ultimately have a legal claim. So that kind of gets to worst case scenario and most people hopefully don't have to ultimately have some sort of legal entanglement with the employer. But just from my work, it's always important to look back to the beginning and to make sure people understand that if they keep it to themselves, they might feel more comfortable in some ways. But if they're terminated a few months after they start treatment and they haven't disclosed that they're in need of an accommodation. But if the employer, you know, if the employer is aware somehow or suspects that the employee, you, the employee, uh, were, were on some type of, let's say, cancer treatment and they let you go, but they give you a different reason. If you can't establish that the employer was aware or perceived that you had some type of disability, you won't have certain legal protections later on. So Allison, that's such an important point. And so I, I want to break that down into two, two points to make sure people understand. Because I, I agree with you, having been on both sides, that the point of a lot of these protections and a lot of these policies is to protect people and support them. And if you don't come forward and say, you know, I'm late because of this or I need this, you're not protecting yourself. But the other side of that is legally you're not required to disclose what your condition is, just that you need an accommodation or you need a medical leave. Can, can we just kind of break that down so people understand when we talk about sharing with the employer, we're not saying you have to disclose you have metastatic breast cancer. What we're saying is in order to enact these protections, you need to come forward that you have a something, but you aren't required, nor should they ask you what condition you have. Is that correct? Yeah. I was just starting off in response to Victoria's question. Just right, right, right. A general response. When it comes to whether you're going to share information so that you will be afforded certain protections. Number one, it, it, it does depend on the law that you have in place. Because again, if you're, for example, in New York City, you're going to have more protection. And my understanding is have to disclose less to an employer in order to later or at some point try to gain protection under the local New York City human rights law. But the point is that if you're, inclined, if you're inclined to seek a reasonable accommodation from your employer, and that is magic language, a reasonable accommodation, which varies depending on your job, the circumstances, but essentially, if you're going to want to somehow 
asks for some extra help, extra leeway, whether it's taking off a day a week for a doctor's appointment or coming in late or working remotely for an additional two months, or if you are in a wheelchair and you need special access, whatever that reasonable accommodation might be, Anne is right. There's, there's a limit to what you have to share. So legally, you don't have to disclose that you have a particular type of cancer. You might not even need to disclose you have cancer. What you need to do is look at your company policies to see the company's uh, policy on seeking a reasonable accommodation or Family Medical Leave Act protection. Look at those policies and, and get your physician involved early on because A, it's going to be very particularized to your needs and B, odds are that your oncologist or you know, your radiation oncologist, your other doctor, your therapist, they have dealt with these requests in the past and they will know how to tailor the letter so that it doesn't divulge too much. And you'll want to know from you know, your doctor's perspective, how much do we need to share? Because from a legal standpoint, you only want to share as much as you need to. And you want to keep that in mind because, of course, some people feel comfortable in the workplace sharing more and they go beyond what they really need to say in order to have that legal protection of the reasonable accommodation dialogue and interaction, which is another subject to discuss. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, but I was listening to Allison and I thought of a question that I would like to pose to you guys. Interacting with your coworkers, not necessarily your employer, how much do you talk about your cancer? Is that a subject that comes up often or not at all? Do you feel that you handled it exactly the right way or had you had a chance to start over, you would have done something different? Sure. So I think by chance I've taken the right steps, but it's really hard to find guidance, especially when you've been first diagnosed because your focus is on your health and telling your family is hard enough. Figuring out the steps to inform your employer is you don't immediately, or I didn't immediately think about what was legally necessary to explain or you know what protections I needed to consider. Unfortunately, I was in such bad shape that there was really no other choice but to disclose. Thankfully, I have only disclosed it to, uh, I think, about four senior executives who have all been supportive, understanding, actually, the CMO as well. So, and that is as far as I need to go, I think. And the response that I got was, I, I would never have guessed the, if you, you know, a box that's carries reams of paper they sent two boxes of gifts for me when they found out so I don't think everyone receives that kind of response when they inform their employer at first I just am lucky to have experienced that I ended up going on short-term leave I returned for about a month and a half and then I had to take long-term leave 
I am back again. And actually, my company decided to put me in a new department that would be less stressful, less demanding of my time. You can't ask for more than to be accommodated for every need. Um, they trust that I get my work done. I leave the hospital when necessary. I leave for all my long list of scans and I just simply say I'll be back or I need a day or a half day. And again, I, I think that I'm in a very unique position. I think only a few of the people that I communicate with have anything close to what I'm experiencing. Thankfully, it, it sounds like I'm not the only one on this, you know, chat that has experienced that. But again, I feel very fortunate compared to other situations that I've heard. I think you just said something important too that, you know, I was diagnosed de novo and like you, Riley, I guess I was in bad shape. I didn't look like I was in bad shape, but apparently my liver was in pretty bad shape. And so I had to start with chemo. And so therefore it's clearly obvious that somebody's leaving for something versus I think people who go on a systemic treatment and may never have disappeared from the workplace for a period of time. And so I think those create different conversations of how much you disclose because once I came back from my chemo and time sort of passed, I think people forgot that I'd had this disease because I was, my treatment was, you know, keeping me stable. And so it wasn't really an issue that needed to be discussed a lot. And so it sort of became a background thing for everyone. Um, not for me, obviously, but for, for everyone else. And I think, you know, how you communicate when you're out like that is sometimes different than just having a disease and having to have an accommodation or, you know, something that's not quite as visible when you, when you leave like that, people want, that's that outpouring of, Oh my God, what's wrong? Where is she? Why is, you know, what has happened to her? Where, what's going on? And I think it's just a different set of circumstances and how you communicate when you're, when you're clearly out versus, you know, what might happen later when you're stable and people forget you were ever, forget you were sick or are sick, right? No, but um, well, true. let me guess. Let me ask, are you HER2 negative? She is. I am. I'm, I'm HR positive, yeah. So those of us that are HER2 positive, particularly de novo, we lose our hair for our first Oh, I lost mine too, yeah. Okay. And so, so I, yeah. you, don't really, you don't really have the luxury yeah, I didn't. Unfortunately, right? like, of you know, hiding what you're going through. Exactly. And so you know, I'll never forget coming back to work, and um, you know, I was very paranoid about the wig I was wearing. And so, thankfully, one of the thankful things is for COVID and using Zoom, you have the choice of using a video or not. So I was able to explain to my boss that I didn't feel comfortable because it was just so obvious to people, um, you know, that I didn't want to go on video, but I slowly crawled out of my hole as my hair started to grow back. And people that don't really know me assume I have short hair. People that know me kind of like wonder why. So, you know, that's kind of also helped me decide who know who to tell and who not yeah. to tell. But, you know, I'm on a team of three, and the third person, I've never told. She can guess, she can hear, but I've never had that discussion with her. I just have short hair. <laughs> I love your wig story, because when I went back to work after chemo, I got a wig. 
And I, I realized pretty quickly, I did it to make everybody else comfortable and it made me exceedingly uncomfortable. And three weeks after I get back to work, I came home, I took off the wig and I said, I'm done. And I put a scarf on and I went to work the next day and I said, they can deal with it because I have to feel like me in order to make this successful. I think we go through that, those of us that lose our hair. I think we all think we need a wig and we go and, you know, my oncologist at the time literally like recommended the wig place and you know, I spent way too much on it. I felt so uncomfortable. I just felt constantly just people were looking at me and thinking, why is she wearing a wig? She's, you know, she looks kind of young, but what's going on there? And so I embraced the scarf fairly soon after and then um, get that little bit of hair and you get excited and it comes back usually like, you know, white, but then, you know, you, you start kind of finding your way. And I, I think in terms of, you know, COVID and Zoom and employment that, you know, a big part of it is how you present yourself, you know, when you come back and can people depend on you and don't mind the hair, you know, I'm here, I'm fully, you know, focused on what I'm doing. So improving to your senior execs that, yes, I have hospital appointments, but I'll get the job done when needed. and. For me, I'm actually allergic to Herceptin, and so I had two anaphylactic reactions and ended up having to do proceed with a, a procedure where it took about 10 hours to administer the Herceptin. So that's actually what really took me out of work, is that I, I just literally physically couldn't contribute adequately. It took me about six months to get onto a normal regimen. But that's when I had to look into short-term versus long-term. And it's not that easy of a decision. It's not that when it comes to insurance and it, it's, it's equally stressful is, you know, it, your life really turns into this insane tumbleweed and you just hope that you land in a safe place. But I highly encourage, you know, you have to talk to your fellow survivors and thrivers in this because there's just, you kind of need the encouragement sometimes because it can be very complicated, very intimidating. You feel like you're the only one going through this at your job. And it's something that you need a lot of support and education on. Thank you. Aaron. Riley has spoken so well about this, but I'm sure it has hurt to you. Positive patient. You have similar stories. Yeah, I don't know that I would have changed how I informed my manager and the people at work. I mean, I, I, it sounds like I had a very similar experience to Riley, where once I told people they were very supportive. And, you know, even when I was in the hospital, I actually had a couple of colleagues try to come out to visit me. They weren't able to because I ended up being at the ICU at that time. But, you know, it was just that kind of support was just immeasurable. You know what I mean? It it just was indescribable how much it helped me just to know that they were there and they were so supportive. I had executive directors offering to get my family's groceries and drive them to our house, you know? So, I mean, it was just, it was really incredible the level of support um, that was offered to us. The other thing too was uh, similar to you, Riley. I mean, I, and, and to Anne, I lost my hair as well. So <laughs> especially, I mean, I, so I essentially started working from home 
um, from the time of my diagnosis, which was basically late, late July, early August. And then I, I COVID hit, right? <laughs> and so I just kept working from home. And so, yeah, it's been a little bit daunting to be constantly on camera, to constantly see my hair. I'm like starting to gradually lose my hair again because I'm on eye brands and that happens. So that's been discouraging. But my, my employer has been very supportive and they, they put me into a management leadership program, which I, I just thought was remarkable considering um, my, my work has a pretty clear idea of what my what my diagnosis is and where my treatment is at. And even though um, they know that, they've been very supportive of me trying to move up within the organization. So it's been pretty amazing. And, and I'm very lucky. I know there are a lot of people that aren't as lucky to have, have such flexibility and also to have such um, a degree of accommodation, I guess to really make sure that I had what I needed to be successful at work. Thank you so much, Erin. It's actually pretty sad that we, we listen to Erin talk about how her employer does this management leadership program irrespective of her status. And we think that that's amazing. It's great. Don't you think it should be a normal thing? I was uh, struck by both, by both Riley and Erin's stories. And... Um, I, I hear what you're saying, Victoria, and I, I agree. However, I think, I, think, I think part of it is, yes, there are employers that are just Machiavellian and maybe they really don't care about their employees as human beings. I would have to think that generally speaking, though, people care, but they just are weighing the different pressures and risks yeah. and cost benefits. But I also think that for the metastatic breast cancer community, each person, typically we're talking about women, right? But each person is really an ambassador to, on behalf of, of this community. And because the notions out there about stage four are, oh no, this person is going to die. Or once you do the research after you're diagnosed, that might be what you see. It's a matter, I think, also of how the employee talks in the workplace or posts online and things that he or she shares, because even if you're sharing the fact that, yes, this is scary and the odds are scary, but I'm working, I'm fighting this, I'm doing whatever I can, and you show that to your employer, I think that maybe I'm giving the employer too much uh, benefit of the doubt, but I think it's a matter of how the employee pulls him herself out to the employer about her future and her hopefulness. And because I think if you have an employee who is, is saying, I'm, you know, it, this looks very bad for me. I'm not sure what kind of future I have that could affect whether you might be considered for this type of management program. So I do think that's part of it. And, and it goes to the struggle that metastatic breast cancer patients have with how they share their story, how honest they are about their fear. And more and more employers should be like uh, the employers of Erin and Riley. These are wonderful stories. Yeah, I know. And, and it seems to me that this is something that our community can certainly embrace. Well, I had a good experience, but I also had the experience of making the decision to leave work, which... I went back for two years after my chemo uh, at a pretty stressful job. And like Erin, for me, I'll, I'll put, use these words. It was a coping mechanism. I love how Erin said she wanted to get lost in something. But my goal was to get back to work and get back to what I thought my life was supposed to be. And 
you know, over that period of time realized that that job and my health was very difficult. But that wasn't something that I really shared a lot with my boss. The difficulties I was having maintaining my job for exactly the reasons Allison was saying and what Aaron did. I didn't, I hadn't made a decision about leaving yet. So I didn't want to truncate any opportunities that I might be handed or I didn't want to plant a seed that maybe I was leaving until I was ready to say, this is what I need to do. And, and two years after I went back to work, I just realized that I couldn't, these two worlds couldn't coexist, but it took me two years to come to an understanding that I could change my life. I wasn't giving in. I wasn't giving up. I was doing what I needed to do to maintain my health. And it took me a long time to accept that I had to to let go of this thing that was my passion, my love, my life. I'd worked at this company for 27 years. So once I started sharing that with my direct supervisor and my HR team, I got a lot of support. We started working together and I tried a few accommodation things at the beginning that just weren't going to work. And then making that decision and then again, you know, that level of support. And then the transition for me was it's 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 funny you have a family at work, but you quickly leave work and work leaves you. And then you're left with what does that look and feel like after you've left work. So it it's been an interesting thing for me. I think I slept for 6 months because I'm on Ibrance and those those listeners who are on Ibrance understand what fatigue is. And that was a big, a big reason that I had to, to leave. And then you start to wonder what your sense of purpose is when you, when you don't have that identity anymore. But in terms of the communication, I, I was very lucky. And I think the three of us that are talking, it's interesting because we all work, I think, for corporations that have lots of structure and lots of policy and lots of things. But there are a lot of women who get diagnosed with this disease who don't have that infrastructure around them and then have to you know, navigate, try and find their way through this. And so one of the questions I had for Allison, for our listeners was, what are those things that are more universal that, that, that people need to be aware of that they can ask questions about? Because one of the things I found with employees is sometimes they don't even know what question to ask. So they don't get the information they need because they don't know where to start. So like I said, I mean, you can, you, you know, you start off technically, you look at the handbooks and Frankly, that's very overwhelming, and I think a lot of people might need assistance with that. Um, and I think it's important to start with perhaps your oncologist and ask, because most facilities will have a social worker and someone there who can put you in touch with outside resources. And so, for example, one of those places that Victoria mentioned is SHARE. And... I know from speaking on a panel very recently to share based in Harlem that they are, you know, they do, they are doing community outreach so that I, you know, frankly, I think women who are not necessarily having executive benefits like some of the panelists might need different options. And so finding resources through your doctor, through the social worker at your cancer facility where you're getting treated, doing your own research to see what are the resources to get assistance and guidance about leave, disability, financial support, Medicare, Medicaid, all of that. It's, it's a matter of finding the resources and the people to ask questions to, really not lawyers, but people who are more expert in providing resources to the community 
with knowledge about these different benefits. Going off of what Allison was saying too, I remember one thing that I did that was really helpful was I asked at the time of trying to figure out what leave policies actually applied to me, I was going through all of this hospitalization and all these other health things, right? And so it was really overwhelming for me to think about sitting down with this policy and trying to make heads or tails of it. And so one of my friends offered to read through it for me and actually condensed it. And I I know it sounds very elementary, but it was such a huge help to me just because I just didn't have the mental capacity based on where I was. And then also I was having like short-term memory issues too from the steroid I was on. So it was really almost impossible for me to kind of parse that. And it was a huge benefit um, that she was able to kind of go through it for me. So that can be an option too. Allison, are there services like this available to the patients, uh, pro bono legal services that would be... uh helpful in in that respect? Yeah. So through the, um, here in New York City, there's a resource that's pro bono through the New York City Bar Association, also known as the City Bar. And that program is run by a woman named Vivian Duncan. And actually, she was the person who coordinated my speaking on this panel to share recently. So the City Bar has basically a hotline. And if you know, I'm not aware of the requirements in order to be eligible, but if, if one is eligible, they'll get some initial free legal advice about benefits, about the types of things we're talking about, you know, whether to tell the employer, uh, what kind of legal protection would you have, or, or dealing with a specific situation. If somebody is getting pushback because she is going for chemo, once a week for three weeks, and then she's a week off. Um, what kind of protections does she have? There, there are these pro bono resources. So depending on where our listeners live, they should look to see, are there pro bono legal resources in their city or their state? Hopefully there's more of what we see here in New York through the city bar. Yeah, where I live in Atlanta, we have Atlanta Legal Aid that, if you're eligible, does very similar pro bono work with Um, disabilities and also things like living wills and wills and all of the different aspects of life. So it, so many, I think Allison, you said this earlier, so many resources that are are available to people are really at the local level and then the state level. And it's, it's important to, to find those places in your area that might be able to help you. One thing that I recognize a lot with employees is just even understanding that FMLA is something that I think pretty universally, Allison, people have access to. I, I'm sure that there are some businesses that aren't required due to size to, to, um, yeah. to follow FMLA. But could you speak just a little bit about that and why that's an important thing people should understand? Sure. So that would also be a policy that would be addressed in the employee handbook. But it's one of those policies that if, if you've just been diagnosed and you're thrown for a loop, you know, it's overwhelming to be reading about that. And I think it was interesting what Erin said about having someone that you trust who's intelligent distill it for you. That's also a policy that would allow for leave for you and also to help take care of uh, a close family, a family member. And that's also something that you can discuss with something like the City Bar Cancer Advocacy Project. You can get assistance there. So there are lots of laws, not, you know, we often think of the Americans with Disabilities Act and then state and city laws, but there are leave acts. New York City now has a paid leave law, which uh, can be helpful. And 
then there's also federal law regarding COVID that can be helpful as an initial starting point. I think we're probably past that now, but perhaps taking a new job, you might have that protection. But like the laws I was mentioning earlier, when it comes to protections relating to wanting to take a reasonable accommodation or also wanting to be protected against discrimination because you have cancer. When it comes to the Family Medical Leave Act, you generally have to make an ask. In some cases, it's enough to say, well, your employer could see that you're coming in, you're you're suddenly bald, you've lost a lot of weight, but generally you need to make the request pursuant to the policy so that you can get this unpaid leave And many companies also have supplemental paid leave policies. So that's another resource that you need to be aware of. And Victoria, to your question about Congress, I think that, you know, one of the things I hear a lot of women talk about is just how do they bridge the gap between deciding to leave work or having to leave work Mm -hmm. and when Social Security or Medicare uh, become eligible. And so there are some, some bills in Congress, which we're about to enact a new Congress, but I'm sure they will get reintroduced to close some of those gaps to make it so SSDI or Medicare, which has, I think Medicare is the two-year waiting period, those get eliminated for stage four breast cancer. But that's things that policy advocates are working on. And anybody really can can play a role in advocating for those types of policies, including things like the uh, Drug Parity Act and the difference between, you know, an IV chemo and what your insurance covers and a more targeted therapy, which um, are very expensive. Again, iBrands users know this, <laughs> as do many other people. So there is there is stuff going on, and we'll include some things in the episode notes if, if listeners are interested in how they can, as an individual, have an impact on, on some of those efforts. We all can contact a congressman or, or have conversations. It doesn't mean you have to become a yeah. full-time advocate to, to impact those kinds of discussions. I mean, I think this has been an exceptionally interesting conversation and uh, there is so much to talk about we just touched upon the uh, small very small area i mean there is just so much else to add but i just wanted to ask all of you in general what advice and i i know we've talked about this quite a bit but is there anything else you would give as an advice to those who are going to go through this who are listening to us who will face the same issues you have I would say that if you're in a position where you're, you've just been diagnosed, you have a lot of questions, you're feeling lost, but your focus is on your health, that you should ask if there's a social worker at the hospital that you're going to who can probably give you the cheat sheet on how to proceed with your employer. Because really, you need to focus on your health more than work at that moment and so you need to find the fastest remedy to you know whatever work um, demands there are that's very helpful Erin do you have anything to say to add to this um I think this is just piggybacking off of what Riley said but I would say just um, make sure you use your network Um, use the formal network of you know um uh, social workers you know um, the occupational therapist that I had was hugely helpful in terms of Um, making the list of the equipment I needed, but also your informal network of friends. You know, I mean, your friends probably have different kinds of skill sets um, and they can help you in various ways. And I would say call share helpline. 
Yeah, also um, there's an organization that I didn't mention, Cancer and Careers, which is very helpful with a lot of the issues we discussed today. And so people will say, you know, when it comes to cancer, if you start Googling the, the downside is you might see scary information and it might be information that's not reliable, but there's also the benefit to doing productive research to find resources and, and doing it on the internet. And that you'll come across things like the city bar and share and cancer and careers so that you'll find people who are knowledgeable and compassionate and can actually help. I just have to say thank you so very much. Thank you. It was thank a pleasure to be well. Let's take a short break before we get back to our interview with Carol Evans, the CEO and Executive Director of Share Cancer Support. Not sure who to call when you have a question about NBC? Whether it's about treatment, medicine, resources, or you just want to talk, we're here for you. Call the TalkMets helpline at 1-844-ASK-SHARE. An NBC patient volunteer is here for whatever you need. Again, that's 1-844-ASK-SHARE or 1-844-275-7427. We look forward to talking with you. We're all in this together. And now we're back. So thank you so much, Carol, for being with us today and welcome to our NBC Life. Thank you, I'm glad to be here. All right, well, we wanted to just highlight your background. We've described your, your career as CEO and founder of Working Mother Media and the Working Mother Magazine, but let's start from the beginning. What, what led you to want to work in media in the first place? Well, I actually wanted to be a writer and I wanted to be a book publisher. I was a book publisher right out of college. I started a book publishing nonprofit <laughs> and published five books of short stories by previously uncollected authors. And then my book publishing company, which was funded by the Illinois Arts Council, we kind of ran out of money. And so I had to go and earn a living to make my book publishing company continue. It was called Story Press. It was really cute. So I went door to door looking for a job as a writer in Chicago. And of course, the magazines are all based in New York. I didn't know that. And, and so I took a job in sales and I've always been really very, you know, sales minded. I sold the most campfire girl candy when I was a kid. Uh, so it was a natural career start for me. And, uh, and so I, I started in sales, selling advertising. And when, when uh, Working Mother was launched in 1978 by McCall's Magazine, I was working for McCall's doing advertising sales. But my mother had gone back to work when I was uh, 12 and I had helped her. It was so interesting. I had helped her to become a working mother. She didn't know what to wear to school, but I did. I was a student in school every day. She didn't know, you know, sort of like some of the basics of how to be a teacher, but I did. So because I was a student, so I helped her. And that was really a big part of my early life was that I understood Working Mother from a very personal, intimate, and caring point of view. And so I just sold the heck out of Working Mother magazine. And, and you know, when you, when you can bring revenue in to a brand new magazine that was very iffy in its launch, it was very unprecedented, nothing like it had ever existed, then, you know, you become very valuable. And so my career started there with my success with Working Mother and Catapult. Unprecedented. And I think sometimes 
listeners and, and so many of my generation forget what the 1970s were like in terms of the evolution of women in the workplace. And you said, you know, working mother coming at a time. Can you just talk a little bit about that? So what happened was that women started to get college educated. They hadn't been for the most part. They began to get college educations and then they wanted to use those educations. And so they started going into business in very large numbers. And when they were in business, then when they decided to have a family, they would drop out. But because so many were going into business, millions, many of us decided to stay in, into the, in the job. And, and we started this whole huge demographic shift of women having babies and staying in the workforce. So you first had this wave of women going to college, then a wave of women uh, going into the workforce, and then a wave of women reaching childbearing age and staying in their careers. And so it, it's a very slow progression. But when we launched Working Mother magazine in 1978, 32% of mothers with children under the age of two were working. And that was an astonishing demographic shift. Almost nobody could believe it. I just went out and told everybody, this is what's happening in the country. Women with young babies are staying in the workforce. And, and it actually started with the younger women with the younger babies. You know? and, and that just changed everything, was that that decision of individuals to stay in the workforce for many, many reasons, to use their skills, to bring money into the household, to feel fulfilled. Those decisions, individual decisions, led to a huge wave of working mothers being the norm. And you know, we're now at about 70% of mothers working with kids of all ages. And it's been steady at that level for a very, very long time. Right. So your work with running Working Mother Magazine entailed so much more than just publishing a magazine because you also ran conferences for women in the workplace that address disparities of all kinds. And we're living in a moment right now where racial disparities in healthcare for people living with MBC is front and center. And certainly we care about this a lot on the podcast. So what is Cher doing and hoping to do to address this critical issue? Well, it's interesting. Cher has been addressing this issue for a very, very long time. And what, I'll jump to the future, which is that we're going to create and run a conference for women of color and healthcare disparities in the spring next year. Thank you for that. I'm wondering if we could like stay a little bit in your early career for just a moment before we go back and move into all of your great work here at SHARE. In your early career, what, what inspired you most? You know, you talked about your mother becoming a working mother when you were in your teens, early teens. What inspired you most in your early career with Working Mother and with all the other things that you were involved in? I, I often talk about my mother, but I think I'd rather talk today about, you know, I talk about her as an inspiration, but I'd like to talk a little bit about the competitive spirit. So I think that part of what drove me in my early career was a sense of wanting to achieve in this very male world. It was so male. I mean, you know, when I took an advertising client out to lunch, 
I had to learn to drink martinis at lunch because it was expected because that's what the men did. And I, it was like really hard for me because I didn't drink. And I was like, okay, so I have to do this to get along with the huge male cohort that all, it was all men who I was selling to. Rarely was there a woman in a position of power that had any influence over buying Working Mother magazine. <laughs> and so, so I felt, you know, very, first of all, competitive with myself to, to achieve. And second of all, I felt I was a feminist from, you know, young, young age. And I felt like I can do this and I can do this in this male world. And, you know, I can really plant a flag here. And in a, in a funny way, you know, I was only the third woman to be hired in advertising sales in the city of Chicago. And it was a very big advertising community. So as the third woman hired, I wanted to succeed. And I wanted to, to get ahead. So as you think about all of your time in, in the business world, both as a business leader, which I think is important, and, and in the medium that you were in, you know, in my experience in the working world, so many employees, men and women, don't know what benefits are available to assist them when they get a critical diagnosis or a family. They're afraid to ask, right? Fear of what that means for their job. What advice would you have for people to figure out what's out there to help them? Because there is a lot. Yeah, there is a lot. Well, first of all, I would kind of liken it to the advice that I gave working mothers for decades. You know, working mothers, when we started, as a group, as a demographic, we, we actually had very few rights, you know, <laughs> and things changed over time and we were, we got more rights and, you know, the right to maternity leave and uh, unpaid, of course, but, you know, we're, we're sorely behind as a country, but we did get rights and companies decided that we were very valuable to them. So they built up a large, you know, ways, important ways of helping uh, women to stay in the workforce. So I would advise working mothers of any age all the time in speeches all over the country and the world that they needed to ask for what they need, ask for what you need. And sometimes it's just a matter of straight talk of saying, here's what I need. I don't know the solution. Here's my problem. I don't know the solution. And, you know, for working mothers who would be going through something each unique to themselves, you know, one person has a sick child, another person has a husband who lost a job, another person has cancer. You know, it's very similar advice. But for women who get diagnosed with cancer on a job, there are many resources um, available to them. But really turn inward to your own company and find out what is there for you. Companies do a pretty terrible job of letting everybody know what resources are available. And frankly, people do a terrible job of seeking out that information. I wanted to take a, a little journey back to the past again and talk about 12 years ago, you mentioned in your book that you, that we've mentioned before that one of your closest friends developed invasive lobular breast cancer. And thankfully she'll, she's doing well today, but what did you observe about breast cancer back then? And how do you compare it to what's happening today? Well, okay. So my best friend, Jen uh, Smith in Colorado, she had was diagnosed and it was, I hate to say predictable, but her mother died at 53 of breast cancer and her sister had breast cancer before her. So there was a lot of familial genetic stuff going on. And she was really, really, you know, severely impacted, of course. She had 13 lymph nodes affected. 
and she had to have, you know, huge double mastectomy. And, you know, I saw very up close and personal how hard it was, how long it took, how many different types of treatments it took to get healthy. Uh, I think there's a lot more understanding now of, you know, how people can react differently to, to any of those types of ways of covering up or hiding or, or just presenting yourself to the public. She decided not to have reconstruction. And I do think that that's something that is, she was ahead of her timeline as well, because now I think there's a quite a significant movement, the flat, going flat movement, where, where there's a feeling that you don't lose a part of yourself. If you lose your breast, you just lose a part of your body. And so you know, I think that go flat movement today would have been extremely helpful to Jan. So, I mean, I think now there's more knowledge about breast cancer. There's more knowledge about, there's certainly more treatment options than what she had. But still, the journey is the same, you know. You have to live through it and you have to work at living. And you have, you suffer. You suffer a lot uh, during that time. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So back like in your 2006 book, This Is How We Do It, The Working Mother's Manifesto, you correctly noted that when a child gets sick, it's usually the working mom, not the working dad who stays home from the office or from any place, from any place at work, right? And you mentioned also the Kaiser Foundation study, you know, back in 2006, the early 2000s, that 50% of mothers miss work when kids are sick compared to 30% of working dads. And now with the pandemic, like look where we are now, there are all kinds of anecdotes that, hey, it's a silver lining, we get to work from home, isn't this awesome? For those that have jobs that allow you to work from home, there is a little bit of that, looking at the acceptance of working from home, flexibility is actually something that like a lot of companies are now saying, hey, we can do this, this makes sense. Whereas many working parents were saying this for a long time, but COVID, again, as I said, a silver lining perhaps. But a recent New York Times article earlier this month reports that more women, often the secondary earner in the household, are being sidelined by COVID with all the homeschooling and even hybrid schooling is a, is a complete drain because some days the kids are home. Some days they're at school, it's a hybrid, and that's the burden is falling major, on the, uh, most of the time on the working mother or the mother uh, or the, the secondary earner, I would say, male or female. And then what's happening is that it's risking all those job gains that we've been making as women over the past few years. So what do you think can be done today on this particular issue? Like it's, it's really a COVID issue that's being highlighted right now. Well, I think it's very distressing how working mothers are being impacted negatively, and women as a whole, uh, according to the current research and thinking, we're losing ground and we're gonna lose a lot of ground in our efforts to have equitable careers, equitable pay and promotion. You know, everything that I was fighting for at Working Mother is really getting lost right now. It's, you know, it's, it's sort of a, symbol of how much things change, but how much things stay the same. So, you know, women are usually the secondary earner, not earning more than their husbands. And, and so their career is taking second seat to their husband's career right now in COVID. 
And that's a shame because women's careers are so important for so many reasons. I mean, first of all, they really increase family wealth tremendously. And in this day when so much divorce happens, they careers, women's careers and women's jobs prevent women from falling into poverty should they encounter a situation where they get divorced. And also the future generation sees their mothers working, sees their mothers, you know, coping and handling everything. And the women, the young girls get inspired about what they can do. I mean, I think we've, we've all seen what a wonderful impact working mothers have on the next generation. Men take a lot of credit for being the new dad. But if, the, if it's all in a huge crisis like this, if so much of it is still falling to women, then we need to ask men to step up. We need to ask them not for help, but for co-parenting, co-houseworking, co-responsibility, co-thinking up how to make things organized. <laughs> you know, so men, they have made progress and no one denies that, but still uh, on the average, they're not doing their fair share. Carol, you mentioned, you know, and all the things that could happen, you said something that struck me. You said, and flexible work arrangements that could be swept away. Everything I've read and sort of even heard from my former company is that COVID is this pivotal moment where companies are going to accept that this is a way that can work moving forward and that they didn't lose productivity. They can have some maybe real estate gains. But you very specifically expressed a concern about being swept away. What is it that, that, that you see that's making you think that that won't be a, a true pivot in, in the workplace? Well, I, I see a pendulum that swings back and forth very, you know, kind of dramatically so that when we had, you know, in the tech world, the tech world was really early on doing wild things to keep people um, in their jobs and letting me have and allowing all this flexibility. And then all of a sudden there was a cry from the tech leaders saying, we want you to work elbow to elbow. The, the critical creativity is when you're all together and they call them all back to the office. You know? I mean, that can happen. And it happened really fast at that time. Mm. But, you know, I don't want anyone to kid themselves. This could happen again, particularly with the way that women are, share, are carrying the burden of the, of the house in COVID. So if women are giving up their jobs and, you know, staying home now when, while flexibility is mandated, then when we all, when, when we do go back to work, you know, I don't think we can underestimate the pull of having these buildings full of people again and having companies feel like, oh, yeah, we were productive, but now we can really get back to work. And having then the women who have had to give up their careers just be end up with end up nowhere. And, and being at home full time is a double edged sword. Almost all women, when asked what they would prefer, they prefer to have uh, part work from home and part work in the office. We need our social context. We need that spirit of uh, competitiveness and togetherness. And we all want flexible work so that we can make the career work. But if we're mandated to stay at home 24 hours, seven, you know, it's really, we're all seeing how it's a strain and how it's going to be a strain on business. So I, I don't think we're going to stay working from home five days a week past COVID very long. 
So we're going to have to really fight and say, hey, we want this flexibility. We, you know, okay, we, we want to make sure we capture the spirit of this flexible work. But we, but we agree, you know, that it's not necessarily good and healthy to be 100% at home. I mean, I, I don't enjoy it. I love not having to get on a train in the winter. <laughs> but I also think that we all need some time together. Yeah. Amen to that. I certainly miss seeing people in person. So you've long recognized the issues around cancer and working mothers, right? And what's been the most surprising thing since you've joined SHARE that you've learned about metastatic breast cancer? Well, I have to say the whole, the whole issue of metastatic breast cancer is the newest thing that I've learned. And it was the biggest learning experience for me in joining SHARE. By far. You know, I mean, I knew a lot about breast cancer because of Jan. I knew about uterine cancer and ovarian cancer. But metastatic breast cancer, I knew very little about. And I think that that's interesting because if I knew very little about it, it just probably means that a whole lot of people know very little about it. The first thing that happened to me at SHARE was that I was shocked and really like I just couldn't stop talking about it. I was shocked that women who, first of all, worked for SHARE or volunteered for SHARE or were ambassadors for SHARE were dying. And, you know, it's, I I hate to be, I don't want to be negative, but I had never had that experience. I had had a couple of women, you know, who had cancer, very important women in my organizations. And, you know, obviously I've been really supportive and we've gotten through their diagnosis together. But, but, you know, I, I, don't, I can't think of anyone who worked for me who had actually died. And it's not just dying, you know, it's not just dying. It's the progression and it's the fear and it's the enormous, just kind of risky time that metastatic patients experience. So the first really sick patients that I saw at SHARE were metastatic women. And that sort of shook me. And then, you know, there were women who progressed and that shook me. And there was a woman who worked for us who had to stop working and that shook me. And, you know, I would, when I was first, when I first joined, I would say to my friends and to my, you know, communities, I'd say, yeah, I'm working for SHARE. And it's really, it's really shocking because women here die from cancer. And, you know, I was just like in tears about it. And I just couldn't really face it. It was something that as a leader, as a businesswoman, I had to confront this. I mean, it might sound kind of odd, but, you know, I had to get over this myself because it's a fact and it's a reality. And it's it's what you're living with as metastatic patients. It's not what I'm living with. But nonetheless, I had to get through that tunnel of understanding. And it was really hard. I think it was the hardest thing that I had to learn at SHARE. And it still is. It still brings me to tears. But I've also, you know, I've also just learned that the most brave and bold women that we have at SHARE are the ones who are in the metastatic volunteer community and who are, even though they're facing a possibility of a shortened lifespan, they devote their life to helping other women. It's truly remarkable and truly, you know, it's the best part of my job. 
How has that, that, that was incredible. And thank you for sharing that learning. And I think it's, it's amazing that so many people know a lot about breast cancer and not a lot about metastatic cancer. And, you know, every October it's like, come on this year. But how has that experience changed your strategic vision from when you walked into the organization to now? Like, has it, has it caused you to rethink anything in a different way as you've sort of experienced this other side of breast cancer? I do think it has changed some of my thinking a lot. First of all, you know, facing the fact that there's this living with as opposed to survivorship. You know, so, you know, early on, I was really talking a lot about survivorship and working with some of the doctors about what we could do for survivorship. And I was really, all, you know, I mean, I'm still very enthusiastic about that and really excited about it. But now I know that there's another side and that is living with. And it's a different, it's a different need, and it's a different, different programs that need to be created, different kinds of support systems. I really didn't understand how, you know, why the metastatic community seemed to be different in their needs and in their attitudes and, you know, not necessarily so let's go pink. You know, I, I, I really had to be taught that. You know, as people had to sit down and say, here's what it is about the pink ribbon, you know, and here's what it is about, about survivorship. You know, I had to be taught, but I'm a very eager learner. And, and so now my purview, my vision of SHARE is much broader that it's not just, this is not about conquering cancer. This is about, for all of us, really about living with cancer. Even the newly diagnosed, I mean, they have to live with cancer during the time that we're first taking care of them. Dan had to, you know, all of her friends had to. So I think living with, which is hugely representative of where metastatic patients' psyche is, you know, I think that has as much weight, equal weight, to what we're going to do at SHARE as survivorship. So thank you so much for your time and generosity and for your support of the pod. We really feel it and we know you're there in our corner and it means a lot to us. It really does. Huge fan of of your podcast. Huge fan. And we'll do everything we can to support it. Thank Thank you. Be sure to send in your Just Gotta Share moments for this month and maybe let us know what you're grateful for in this month of Thanksgiving. Check out our listener survey available via our social media channels and on our website. We really want to know what you liked about season one and any ideas that you have for us in season two. We care about what you think. Everyone who fills out the survey will have the chance to be picked to join the pod team during a season two episode of Just Gotta Share and receive a bunch of RMBC Life gifts, which include Adipa Barney's book and Ann Lozer's book, The Insider's Guide to Metastatic Breast Cancer. Thank you so very much. This podcast is produced by me, Lisa Laudico, and our truly collaborative and expanding team of Jersey Baker, Natalia Green, Victoria Goldberg, Kirby Lewis, Sheila McGlone, Shante Randall, and Anne Woodward. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, the Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at SHARE Cancer Support. Interning with us are Angelica Alberstadt and Amy Tedeschi. We have benefited from expert social media consulting from Jake Amarelli, 
And we now have, finally, expert sound design and original music compositions from Jim Cremens. We have an exciting November and December planned to close out our inaugural season, and we look forward to launching Season 2 in March of 2021. Please let us know what you liked in Season 1, what you would like to hear more of in Season 2, and we will be randomly selecting three listeners who respond to our survey with a guest spot on our Just Gotta Share episodes. You can find more of our episodes of RNBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, rate us, and review us, and look for a new episode every Monday. And submit your Just Gotta Share moments, check out our blog, and full episode notes on our website at rnbclife.org. We'd love to hear from you.